Undeceptions podcast. So it is the climate, it's democracy, it's the pandemic, it's Handmaid's Tale, it's Russia, it's Ukraine, it's high school shootings, it's the radical left, it's the alt-right. Everything is set to collapse. Imagine a DeLorean time machine car appears outside your house this year and you get in and you're told that you're going to 2052 to see what the future looks like. You arrive and you see what it actually looks like 30 years from now. Do you want that future? What would you do to get there or to get away from that future? That's what we're going to find out. How about this? I was in Sydney recently, and not once, but twice in the CBD, I saw street preachers with the end is nigh on placards. And one was with a group of people marching behind it, and they were chanting. And it took me back to my teens in Northern Ireland, where street preachers, manic street preachers, if I may, stood on the corners of the town squares, warning us to flee from the wrath to come. Well, warning those who were listening to them, After so many years and so little wrath, or at least so little external wrath being delivered, and so much internal wrath, politics, sectarian violence, etc., everyone had kind of given up listening to the street preachers. But back to Sydney. It turns out this wasn't a religious street march. Well, not in the traditional sense anyway. And I looked at the placards again. The end of coal is nigh. This was a climate protest, a hot, urgent, almost religious climate protest. The end of the world is indeed nigh, not because Jesus might be coming, but because an irreversible catastrophe is coming, a climate crisis, a very earthbound crisis indeed, but the language around it has a religious tone to it that belies its material roots. And I'm hardly the first to notice this, I'd say. Writing on the Unheard Online Journal, commentator and author Louise Perry made the observation that green activism is taking its cue from the book of Revelation in the Bible. She describes an experience she had, almost a religious experience, she would say, near the cathedral in the UK city of Norwich. So she heard shouting, and she describes a bearded, dishevelled man a prophetic figure, if ever there were one, and she went over to hear more of what he was saying. You won't be smiling when your children are starving to death, he was saying, and as she hurried away, she heard, climate collapse is coming for us all. This, said Perry, will not have been the first time that a self-styled prophet stood outside this 14th century religious building shouting that the end is nigh. Now, a caveat from Perry and from me, This is not climate change denial, though what that even means any longer is hard to know. As you can assume from the tone of her article, and from my experience too, denial is no longer a case of right or wrong in this debate when it comes to climate. It's a case of good and evil. It's a case of heaven or hell. 
As Perry's article notes, the language around climate now has all of the hallmarks of Christian apocalyptic literature. You know that stuff, the spooky stuff in the book of Revelation. Beasts and numbers of beasts and four horsemen, destruction and mayhem, stars falling from the sky, that sort of thing. Except, of course, this is now an apocalypse without any divine intervention. No Jesus coming on the clouds on a white steed to save us. It's an angst-ridden apocalypse that has no off-tap. And Perry notes a disturbing series of self-immolations by climate activists. The fire is coming anyway. Might as well not prolong it and set yourself on fire. It's a move that is more familiar among Tibetan Buddhist monks protesting occupancy by China. And it seems, well, it seems zealous and very religious. And Perry presses the point, this sense of crisis moves beyond climate, especially for those born at the start of this century. Case in point, another Louise, 24-year-old Louise on Twitter, is standing on a busy UK overpass, filming herself, crying out, I'm here because I don't have a future. Now, those whose earliest memories are of the Twin Towers falling are experiencing not simply a climate crisis, but a crisis climate. Crisis is everywhere. It abounds. The end has seemed nigh for some time and from lots of different things. And for all of their lives at least, younger generations are feeling that they're just waiting for the axe to fall or the fire to fall. Whatever it may be, it will fall. It's a climate of crisis in seemingly every direction. So where's it all headed? Well, in a bad direction, clearly. For many, especially those born around the time of the Twin Towers, the day the world changed, remember that, it sounds like it's going in a very bad direction indeed. And now they're all grown up and they're in a crisis climate. The heat is ramping up everywhere about everything. So it is the climate, it's democracy, it's the pandemic, it's Handmaid's Tale, it's Russia, it's Ukraine, it's high school shootings, it's the radical left, it's the alt-right. Everything is set to collapse. And it all started with those darned twin towers collapsing, hopes and dreams of a better future collapsing with them. Now, every decade makes a comeback at some stage, doesn't it? But the 90s? Well, I remember them as if they were yesterday, but they're back in a special way. And at my age, they just seem to have finished. But for 20-somethings, it's like it's the golden age of the past before the crisis before the crises, before the crisis climate. And the fascination with the sitcom Friends. It seemed barely believable the first time round, and now it's been treated almost like a docudrama. Life was really like that? That simple? Yeah, sure. And 90s style, no smartphones, just enough tech to get you by, and not enough to get you stressed or experiencing FOMO. Okay, so perhaps that's embellishing things a little bit. I wasn't certainly sitting around in the 90s going, the 90s, eh? What a time to be alive. But for many younger people today, 
the sense that there was a time just tantalizingly close to them in which things seemed less, well, less like a crisis climate, that's a pleasant thought. That's a golden age of gods and heroes. So a longing for a past, and at the same time, a falling away of any sense of a future where there is any sort of divine intervention or religious belief, that's what we're in at the moment, this this mix of a past that looks great and a future that looks terrible at the same time that orthodox religious belief is on the decline. Religious belief itself, not so much. Orthodox religious belief, yes, but everyone still seems religious. It's super hard to shake the form and pattern of religion in our lives. Cultural commentator Tara Isabella Burton makes the observation, just as Louise Perry does, that many of the emerging movements today have a religious sentiment and implicit theologies to them, but they have no coherence to them. They're fractured, and by nature, they are fracturing. So it's an epoch in which we're drifting further apart from any common view of humanity. Having dispensed with all the oughts of a supposedly oppressive culture and moving us back to the is of where morality is relative, that's where we're at at the moment. Yet such movements are struggling to unite everyone under a new ought, like a climate crisis ought. Deconstruction's a heady process, but it gets addictive. It's hard to stop once you get started. And reconstruction, building something from the mess, well, that's just much harder. It requires rules and laws, prophets, priests, a set of commands, a set of worshippers, a common purpose. And if precious few want to join you, if too few wish to deface expensive masterpieces in museums for the sake of the cause, all you're left with is a weird sectarianism, a cult, and that can keep you going for a while, but not forever. Why not simply settle into a postmodern nihilism? Admit it's all going to pot and just enjoy the ride, which is what many seem to be doing. Now, TikTok is an intriguing platform, isn't it? Its strength, I think, is its lack of story. What you get is a snippet of something, funny or rude or both. Nihilistic humour is removed from narrative. After all, if there's no common narrative, why don't we just cut to the punchline? (laughs) But of course, at some stage, even the humour goes, and all that is left is cold, depressing nihilism. A friend sent me a sobering conversation with a nihilistic young man about the state of global politics. And my friend made the observation to this young man that we are indeed morally responsible beings and that we have an agency about us that can bring about positive change and that those with power especially should use their power responsibly. The young man's reply, well, it included this. I think it's quite naive to think that those with power have a responsibility to use it well. I think they have an opportunity to use it well, but not a responsibility. And he goes on, if you think we're morally responsible beings, you'd always be disappointed by people, including yourself. This is why we're paralyzed by the idea of woke. We can never be too woke. Your green technology can never be green enough. And he finishes with this flourish. There is not enough spaghetti in the world to throw at Van Gogh paintings. And that last comment 
is a reference to the Extinction Rebellion activist who did exactly that, to protest climate change. You see, we're oscillating between extreme actions or no actions at all. It's either anger or despair. And anger and despair that can never reach any crescendo. It's an eternal waiting for an apocalypse. And perhaps this helps explain the levels of anxiety that we see. It's one thing to be on a knife edge for a while. It's another thing entirely to be on a knife edge all of the time. I mean, who can hold that tension and how long can they hold it for? Now, of course, there are other imagined futures being offered to us as well that seek to resolve this tension of this crisis climate. There's a technological hope that offers a way forward. You see, one way to escape the fiery planet is to dial down the temperature so we can live on the surface. Another way is to inhabit somewhere else altogether. And I don't mean another planet, like is there life on Mars? Well, perhaps there is, but it won't be any help to us at the moment. There's also life somewhere else, a digital life where we are disembodied, the prospect of an AI future, a transhuman experience in which we are uploaded safely onto a digital platform that seals us off from the crises engulfing our actual material world. In fact, transhuman is increasingly being seen as a secular salvation story, a promise that will release us from the sins of this age, a disembodied life which cannot be harmed directly by others or harmed indirectly by the thoughtless actions of others. In a piece on transhumanism recently in the online journal The Conversation, Sharina Osborne from Swansea University made this statement. If the end goal of transhumanism is to leave our biological origins entirely behind us, then a post-human world would also be a post-gender world, in which case so much of the discrimination that focuses on the body would become extinct. Osborne's piece discusses the discrimination that transgender people experience. She sees the body not so much as a pointer to what could be, but a problem that needs to be resolved. A transhuman experience promises to end the sins of discrimination by leaving our biology behind us. And it's a salvation story, but all without a body, a way to loose the surly bonds of our humanity in a world that keeps letting us down in a time of constant crisis. Now, let me ask you, does that sound all that attractive? It sounds like a least worst option to me, a least worst option in a world of constant apocalypse. But it certainly promises to ease the tension, doesn't it? Now, faced with all these real world problems, perhaps being digitized and therefore beyond the cruel grip of a failing material experience is not so bad. Perhaps being uploaded into an endless loop of Friends reruns sitting in Central Perk with Rachel and Ross might just ease the crisis climate. Or perhaps not. So what can we do about this? Well, perhaps we can go back to that 14th century cathedral in Norwich and Louise Perry's experience with the bearded, disheveled prophet. 
Perry says that 21st century encounter wasn't the first apocalyptic pronouncement outside that cathedral. Surely it wasn't. It's hundreds of years old. Every plague since would have ushered in an end-of-the-world doomsday scenario. Every threatening war in Europe also. Yet here's what probably tempered it. Here's the safety valve that let off some of the steam as people were making their pronouncements. Here's what ensured that although there was crisis, there was an escape route. And an escape route beyond a disembodied experience in the safety of a digital heaven. It was the explicit belief that there was hope beyond the despair. And Louise standing on the overpass announcing to Twitter that she does not have a future. That's despair without hope. It's crisis climate all the way down. And the 14th century in Norwich, for all of its ills, was a place of horrendous conditions, but it was committed nonetheless to the apocalypse ending with hope. The hope of the resurrection of Jesus, the embodied resurrection in a new creation. That one day, despite our worst efforts, and in line with our best efforts, a resurrected, embodied God would usher in a new age and put everything right. When the Bible speaks about the end being nigh, it's not necessarily a vehicle for fear or despair, but a vehicle for hope. For the end is the beginning of something new. Uh, The Lord's Prayer, very famous, says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the promise is that it will be. And what we pray, we then work towards, whether that's working for a better climate, a more peaceful nation, less injustice and more mercy. Christian hope means we're not looking for the 90s to come back. We're looking for Jesus to come back. The word apocalypse simply means to reveal, to reveal something or someone, someone who you can't see but is there. You just can't see it yet. Christian hope does not reduce us to quietism, hiding away, waiting for doomsday, prepping out on some five acres somewhere in the countryside. It does not reduce us to nihilism. Some things ought not to be, and we work together to change things that ought to be changed. And the return of Jesus will reveal the full extent of what change is needed but we work towards it anyway. Perhaps another experience in Sydney that week to close off. In fact, it was an experience I had not five minutes later. I was standing outside Town Hall at the top of the city waiting for a friend, and it was an impossibly sunny, balmy day, like Sydney can put on in spring, and there were people everywhere. And Town Hall stands next to another cathedral, Sydney's St Andrew's Cathedral. And then bursting out of Town Hall in a flurry of beautiful dresses and lounge suits and flowers and beautifully wrapped gifts, dozens and dozens of new Australians, just fresh from a citizenship ceremony. And they were from all over the world. They poured over the concourse, cascading down the steps, excitedly holding their certificates, posing for photos, kissing loved ones. Hope and joy rolled into one, the chance of a fresh start. And you know what? There was something religious about that too. Something about meaning and purpose beyond the individual. 
It was great just to stand and watch it. Look, I know that doesn't solve a crisis climate, not even a climate crisis, but there is something about hope, isn't there? Something apocalyptic, something revealing, something about humans having a future, a better future that drives us further than despair ever will. The end is nigh, but it might just be a better end than we are fearing. Podcast.